This is the Planetary Potential Podcast. For those who are eager to explore entrepreneurship, innovation, and cross-cultural communication in exciting and interesting places around the world. And now, here's your host, Andrew P. Rowan. Welcome to Episode 2 of Season 1. If you've ever been curious about agriculture, cooperatives, organic farming, or farm production economics, then this is the interview you've been waiting for. I sit down with Professor Manuel Lopez of the University of Pura to learn more about his activities at the university, the advantages of growing food in the desert, as well as real-world examples of comparative advantages between different types of crops. We also touch upon previous migration waves to Peru, including from Japan and China, and examine the state of the current influx of refugees and economic migrants originating from Venezuela. An important reminder that opinions shared on this episode are those of individual guests. For more information, please visit www.andrewprowen.com disclosures. I was introduced to Professor Lopez by colleagues at Habudep, the incubator at the University of Piura, and we had the opportunity to get to know each other better over lunch before he invited me to give a talk to his class about the Vietnamese enterprise ecosystem. Piura is located near the coast and also near the border with Ecuador, so let's head there now to start the interview with Professor Lopez. With me is Manuel Lopez. He's a professor in the Department of Industrial Engineering at the University of Piura, which is in Peru. And we are on campus at the University of Piura, which is a gorgeous campus, especially because we are in Building E, which has been open for about two or three years and has won some international awards. It is a stunning example of architecture so if you ever get the chance to visit, you should definitely come check it out. Welcome, Professor Lopez. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, thank you for your visit here in the University of Piura in Peru. Thank you for this opportunity to talk something about what we are doing here in, in Piura. I am Manuel Lopez. I am forest engineer. Uh, and I am here in Piura for four years. This is my fourth year here in Piura. I came from Bogota, where I was working, and I came to open a new program in, master, in a master degree in agribusiness. Uh, this is my main issue here in the University of Piura. And now I am the director of innovation in the university too. So uh, Professor Lopez and I, we met earlier last week, and it was through my work here with Habudep, which is an incubator at the University of Pura. It's been open for about two years, and my work here with them is supported by the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program. So I've been here for a little over a week, uh, and then I'll be returning to Lima, the capital, and so uh, I have taken this opportunity to get to know Professor Lopez a little bit better. I gave a presentation about the Vietnamese ecosystem to his class two days ago and was surprised to see that some folks knew the connection between Viettel in Vietnam and Bitel, which is a subsidiary of Viettel here in Peru. Apparently, it is one of the most economical telecommunications providers in Peru, and it was favorably spoken about, in fact, as one of the state-owned enterprises that is kind of bucking the stereotype of being this staggering behemoth that is not so agile. So, Betel has been here for about four years. 
Their stores, if, you, if you've seen a Vietel store in Vietnam, it looks pretty much like a Vietel store here in Peru, which I found surprising because it's the only market that Vietel is active in South America. Also active in a few markets in Africa as well. So we're here on campus, which it's a wonderful immersion of both a space that's used by humans Mm-hmm. and space that's used by the original inhabitants, uh, mm-hmm. animals. And one of the absolute joys of my time here has been the mild interaction I've had with the deer mm-hmm. and birds. Mm-hmm. And so different from deer that I, I'm used to in the mm-hmm. U- U.S., for example, mm-hmm. that are afraid of you. The deer here, the, they seem to have no fear, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a sign that they're taken well care of mm-hmm. by the community. And quite surprising to see how much bird life there is here. At times, the birds just overpower your senses when you're walking around campus. That being said, it is a desert. And this is, in fact, a a special year for the university Mm. because it's the 50th anniversary. So imagine creating something in the desert 50 years ago, and now you have this this beautiful campus. I'm happy that... You like this campus because you know that we have transformed the from the desert to this kind of dry forest. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about some of your uh, portfolio projects that you have among your responsibilities? Yes, of course. In the um, agribusiness issue, we have a master program, and now we are developing some research lines especially in the, the part of automatization of agroindustrial processes. We are trying to develop s- some improvements in, for example, the transport of organic banana inside of the fields. Uh, you know, banana, organic banana here in Pira was developed for more than 6,000 of small farmers, and uh, they have very little farms they have maybe one or two acres per family. Mm-hmm. And in this space, they produce the organic banana. And at the beginning, they only sell the banana to the big companies that export the banana. But now, many of these small farmers have organized, and now they have some kind of cooperatives or associations and, you know, if you sell your product as a small farmer, uh, you won't have good prices. You, you have a lot of extra costs uh, in your production. But now as associations, they have a, a better scale to export their products. Include there are some associations that now they are exporting directly. You know? At the beginning, they sell all, the produ- all their production to the exporters, but now they are exporting directly the containers with FOP price to the big companies. And we are working with this kind of producers because we think that in the future with big companies, because now there are some big companies that are producing organic banana here, then we think that in the future they won't be competitive with these big companies because, you know, they have... Uh, one acre, one acre, one acre in different places, yeah. and their costs, their logistic costs, the supply, uh, supply, man- supply chain costs yes. are very expensive if you compare with the big companies that they have 
100 hectares or uh, maybe 130 acres yeah. uh, or more, then, you know, we have to do something with these small producers. So there are many redundancies that, that small producers have then yeah. because yeah. with the larger producers, they have, of course, economies of scale. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about these farm producers that you mentioned? Are they just here in the northern region or are they throughout the country? And how have they been able to establish uh, relationships outside of the country mm -hmm. and facilitate the export of their product directly? Yeah, here in Pura we have a, a, a special conditions, climate conditions. We are near to the equator, but we, are, we have a dry, dry climate. Then in humid climates, in Central America, in Ecuador, in Colombia, yeah. they can produce banana, but not much organic banana because they have this humid climate and they have a lot of diseases that attack the banana. I see. But here we have a dry climate. Yeah. Then there, there is a special disease to the bananas that is the cigatoca negra. It's a kind of uh, fungus that attack the, the banana. Then all the producers around the world have problems with, the, with this fungus and they have to apply some chemicals to avoid the attack of this. Uh, but here we are in a desert region, we are in a dry region, right. and we don't have this problem. Right, you don't have the humidity yeah, that contributes to the growth. Then we can grow organic banana because we don't have to use this uh, kind of chemicals products to, right. to reduce the attack of this. Uh, and for that, for that reason, Piura and the south of Ecuador, we have a very special conditions to produce organic banana, not the conventional banana, because, you know, Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, they have yeah. a lot of banana, but those are conventional production. Yeah. We have organic banana, that is, that it goes to special uh, markets, you understand. Yeah, so, so to be clear, when you say organic banana, you mean naturally grown without the use of any yeah. sort of growth stimulants yeah. or any sort of protectors to help with the fungus that you mentioned? Uh, or yes. is it an organic certification whereby a third party comes in and certifies the produce? They, got, they have organic certifications. Then there are some products that they are able to use. But those are natural products or bio products, uh, something like that, but not chemical products. Okay. And the, the, the main fertilizer here for this production is uh, compost. Compost, yeah. Compost and uh, humus, like a, with, with a kind of, uh, I don't know how to say this in... In, in Spanish, uh, what was the name? Lombriz, humus de lombriz. Uh, snails? Son unos gusanos, las lombrices. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, they they consume the organic uh, waste okay. and they produce a kind of earthworms. The the humus and all the, uh, the the main fertilization for this production of banana is with compost. Uh, I mean organic uh, fertilization. Yeah. Huh. There are some products to avoid some kind of attacks, but those are part of the certificated system. And so those naturally grown bananas, 
those are all for the export market. They're, yeah. they're not for the domestic yeah, market. No. So I won't, I won't be able to find them here. Uh, you can find it because you know that when you have the better quality goes to the international markets, but there are some quality that don't go to the international market and they yeah. sell here in, in national market. But you know that the price, it's not the same <laughs> that right. uh, in Germany, but it's one of the our, our first uh, consumer. U.S., Germany, and Holland are our first consumers of okay. our organic banana. Yeah. Interesting. Then we're, we're working with this kind of producer because uh, they need to improve their own technologies. Uh, I mean, uh, intermediate intermediate technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, we're working with a kind of cables where you can put the, the fruit and move from the field to the packing plant without... Because in the past, they put the, the, the fruit on, on their, their shoulders. shoulders and walk maybe 100 or in, include uh, 200 meters walking with and then yeah. it causes some damage to the to the fruits but now we're in, in, in implementing some kind of cables uh, and you you put the the fruits and you pull it or push yeah, it you pull the, the the all the all the system and the fruit goes well and they reduce their cost of uh, post-harvest. You know? And this is a kind of, of technology that we can implement in this kind of... Uh, and and it, it's low-tech then. Yes, I mean, it's low-tech. It's low-tech. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that you're not, you're not mechanizing a part uh, of the process. Not yet. We expect in the future uh, put some kind of... In some places, they develop some kind of bicycles and then uh, go like a bicycle and uh, go uh, pulling the, the fruits. Mm. But in the future, we expect to have some kind of uh, motors. No? What about automation? Do you expect to have the entire process automated at some point in the future? It depends. For example, the big companies, they have all the process automatized. But yeah. of course, in the packing plant, no. In the packing plant, they, have to, they need a lot of labor To, to select the fruits, to, to make some kind of treatments, to, to pack. No? Right. But in, in some countries, of course, they have all the process automatized. Here, for us, it's not necessary yet. Because, of course, we, 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 yeah, we, yeah. We, we have a low labor cost. And, of course, we give a lot of work to the people. Sure. We need that people work. Then yeah. if we autom automatize all the process, Maybe we, we will have a lot of people without work, and then automatization is a is a process that we we have to 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 think about, mm. not not to do it uh, immediately. You have to think about how to do it progressively, depending on how much you need this automatization. Sure. Yeah. But then, in that sense, the farm producers aren't able to be as competitive in terms of cost yeah. as the Uh, large farms yes, and, and yes. the managers of those farms. Yeah. So how are they able to then compete with those large farms if they can't reach the same cost benefits with automation like the larger industrial farms do? You, you mean how we'll be able? How, how, what's so you, you said that some of the large farm producers here in uh, northern Peru, mm -hmm. they have the whole process fully automated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
but these arms yeah. that you work with, mm. they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, they have some parts of the process mm -hmm. that have some mechanization, yeah. but it's all using low tech. Yeah. So, of course, the cost mm. to them is higher yeah. than the cost for yeah. the large farm producer. Yeah. So I'm wondering how they're able to compete directly yeah, um, with the large farm uh, producers uh, or different this, markets. At this moment, the price of the market is very good. Then the small producer has they have less benefits than the big ones, mm -hmm. but they have benefits. Okay. No, and for so they, it's enough. And in the other side, the small farmers has this kind of certification that is uh, fair trade. Fair trade. Certified. And they okay. receive an extra payment uh, because they are small producers and I see. Okay. Uh, and it's okay for them, but. In the future, maybe in two years, uh, because the last years the price is going down, then that's why we are uh, worried about, because we think that maybe in two years the price, because we have now big volume of products in the market, because sure. there are some big companies planting here and in Colombia and in Costa Rica and in Ecuador, organic banana. We don't believe those are organic banana because you, I, I explained you why here we can do it. Yeah. But there now there are a high offer of organic banana in, in the market. Then the price is going down. Sure. And we, uh, we expect that maybe in two years, if this uh, trend cont yep. continue, we'll have a price that where this small process won't be competitive. Mm. For that reason, we have to work now in think about how to associate these companies, how to create some kind of trade cooperatives, how to improve the, um, the logistic, the supply chain, how to reduce some costs in the production, then we have to think about that now, yeah. because if we, if we don't do that, in two years we will have some, a lot of small producers without production or without competitiveness now in front of the market. Yeah, so what was it like first, at first, working with the the small farms and, and trying to, were they, were they interested in that idea at first? Were they somewhat apprehensive? Did they not really understand what they were, what they were being offered? Or were, was it some something in between where yeah. they realized there was more benefits yeah. with greater numbers? Yeah and uh, they wanted to move in that direction. The organic banana began uh, its production here after the El Niño phenomenon of 1998. Okay. Uh, the government put some areas with organic banana, and from this year, the, the area of organic banana has increased a lot. And then we have 20 years of organic banana here uh, in Peru. And Maybe the first 10 years was difficult to mm. organize the small producers. Okay. But after 10 years, when they see that it's possible to, to work together and to, and to get this kind of associations and cooperatives, sure. it changed. Now okay. we have the main exporters of organic banana are associations of small producers. Wow. Now, this year, until uh, 2018. Okay. We we know that this year, uh, large companies will be the, the the bigger exporters of banana, but we expect that now it's possible. 
Okay. Now, because of a lot of small producers has seen that to work organized and in associations or cooperatives has functioned, then they want to work in that way. No. And, and I expect it also must be easier if you're trying to do the same with other fruit producers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because then you can point to the banana growers yeah. and say, well, look at the clear benefits yeah, yeah. for yeah, them over the period of 20 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, are there other fruit industries yeah. that you're looking to target to help? In that sense, the next one, it should be mangoes. Mangoes. Yeah, because in mangoes you have small producers too, you have mid-sized producers too, uh, but they are very disorganized, completely disorganized. It's, it's a terrible market. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of inter, intermedi inter intermediaries, intermediaries yeah. that the resellers uh, and they buy it and they buy it at low cost and right. sell. There are a lot of exporters that it's very disordered sure. area. And we think that we have to translate some of the model of organization that we have in organic banana to the mangoes. I see. This is the next one. Maybe limons is the other one. Yeah. But not not, not yet because uva, the grapes, table yep. grapes, those were planted by large companies. Got it. And, and I, as I understand, Korean companies. Korean. Korean. Maybe there's. A, I think there is a Chinese company and a Korean company maybe. But the Chileans, the, from Chile. Chileans, yeah. We have the, the, the bigger one is a Chilean company called Rappel. Mm -hmm. They have almost 2,000 hectares of table grape here in Pura. 2,000 hectares. Yeah. Ecosac is Peruvian and Pura company. They have 1,300. And the other one is Chilean, or half Chilean, half Peruvian is El Pedregal. They have more than 1,000 of hectares of grapes, table grapes, too. So there are about four or five main companies with table grapes, then, right? There are more. There, there are more, but yeah. those are the main ones. Yeah, the main the ones, ones, there are those three, but I think it could be maybe 12 companies with table grapes. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit curious if there's an issue with the overuse of pesticides here in, in farming. And, well, for example, in Vietnam, mm. there is a huge issue with mm. the overuse of pesticides. Farmers there mm. often think that the more that they use pesticides, mm. the better mm. it is to mm. try and, and, and kill the uh, bugs mm. that are bothering the, um, the growth of, of their crops. Yeah. Along those lines, also, there, I think, is, is kind of a, a lack of education mm -hmm. in terms of agricultural yeah. mm -hmm. know-how in yeah. the sense that, uh, for example, I, I recall a Fulbright scholar who had done some work in Hanoi shared with me that uh, the coffee producers did not like bees because mm -hmm. they thought that the bees yeah. were killing no. their crops, yeah, yeah. which was astonishing to me. Yeah. And then I remember also reading an article about shrimp farming mm -hmm. in Vietnam, mm -hmm. and somebody had asked the shrimp farmers, mm. well, um, where do you think the shrimp come from? Yeah. And the response was, well, the shrimp, they, they come from the ground. They're mm -hmm. grown from the ground. Yeah. And uh, this to me seemed quite puzzling, especially when you're, mm. you, you have your livelihood 
mm-hmm. that's relying yeah. on on these on these kinds of crops. Back to my original question, which is: Is there an issue here with uh, the overuse of pesticides and uh, lack or limited mm-hmm. educational information mm-hmm. on the best practices yeah. when it comes to agriculture? Of course. Well, you know, all of these crops are for export. Then we are down the supervision of the international market. Mm-hmm. You, know? uh, you can have some companies that have nine certifications, uh, Nescal, Walmart, uh, Global Gap. Every market wants a, a kind of certifications, and we have to we have to have all the certifications because we have to, we want to export to these countries. Sure. Then, in those crops for exportation, we don't have that kind of problems because. You know, if you have a, a table grape in United Kingdom, they are going to to look what they have. No, you, you understand. They're going to inspect it. Yeah, you, you inspect. If, if they receive something out of the law, they're going to reject re- re- reject the container, and yeah. we don't want that. Sure. But we have some problems with organic banana because sometimes there are some small producers that apply something. Mm. And we have had some problems in the market. They supervise and they reject. And it's it's bad for our image as a country exporting yeah. fruits. For that reason, we are working a lot to conscientize people that they don't have to do that. In mangoes, we have some kind of problems. Table grape, no, because, you know, there are some company, big companies and they are very disciplined, strict about, yeah. strict about that. Especially in... Mango because maybe because they have so disorder. I told you about that. And in in banana, some some small uh, producers that don't fall. But our main problem with this kind of products is the rice. Okay. We have a lot of rice here in Pira. You, you can imagine we are in the desert. We don't have a lot of water, and we grow a lot of rice here. We have almost. 70,000 of hectares of, of, rice. of rice here in Pura. Wow. It's the, the, the crop that have the most uh, area. And the rice production is completely disordered. Really? Disorder, yeah. Nobody controls the production of rice. There are a lot of people producing, uh, producing rice and maybe the ministry. But, you know, our ministries are not good in supervising mm. some kind of process. And in rice, we have this problem of salinization. Uh, we have the problem of the use, the excessive use of some kind of pesticides. Interesting. Yeah. So, it, again, to, to contrast to Vietnam, yeah. also a major rice producer mm. in the world, about half of the rice in Vietnam is grown in the Mekong Delta in the yeah, south, yeah, southern yeah, part of the country. Yeah, of course. And there is also an increasing uh, salination yeah, issue yeah, yeah. due to rising sea level yeah. and the damming mm-hmm. of the Mekong mm-hmm. River. The interesting thing about increased salination is that at first you can grow shrimp yeah. uh, because of the salination. Mm-hmm. So some rice farmers have mm-hmm. also focused on shrimp farming. Mm-hmm. But after a certain point, you can't grow anything. Yeah. Uh, because it mm. just becomes too salty. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm curious what the salination problem is that you have uh, here. Be- well, those those soils are naturally uh, salt. The naturally yeah, salty, okay. Natural salt. We are 
near to the sea. Yeah. This wind have salt. Oh, okay. So the, the wind carries the, wind the salt particles. The wind, the soil, and sometimes, uh, you know, you have to give a lot of water to the rice areas. Yeah. And the water touch the subsoil water, okay. under, underground, underground water. From the water table. And in the low part of the valley, near to the to the sea, yeah. they have this kind of problem because the 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 underground water near to the sea has some kind of uh, salt, salt con water. Con it seeps yeah. into yeah, the yeah. water table. Yeah, then, of course. Yeah. Okay. Then the the salt ascends and got the, the surface of the soil on. Okay. You understand? Yeah. So what you're saying is that near the near the coast, because yeah. we're not that far. Yeah. The salt water seeps into the water table, mm -hmm. and the salt rises up to the surface, yeah. and uh, that's when it, it contaminates yeah. the, the soil, the, soil, the top soil, soil well, the that's salt. used for the yeah. growth of, of mm -hmm. rice. Yeah. And and so what's what's one solution? Uh, we are trying to change the crop. Don't because the cost of pro, of pro, of produce rice here is higher than the that import rice from China or from Vietnam or from Philippines. Okay. The, the, the cost pr production here is high because mm. we don't have water, because they have to apply a lot of products. For, for Peru, it's better to import rice. Because you're essentially, you're growing rice in the desert, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> we don't have water. Yeah. We, we produce rice here in the north of Peru and in the jungle in San Martin is another region. But it's in the Amazon basin, and yeah. they have a lot of water. So there's more humidity over there. But course, yeah. they have to move the rice from the Amazon area to the coast. Most of the population is in the coast. And they have to go through the Andes. Okay. Then the coast, to, to have rice from San Martin in the coast, is higher than have rice from Philippines okay. or Vietnam. And the cost of production, of course, here is higher than... Higher. That country, that, and we eat a lot of rice. <laughs> no, we yes. eat a lot of rice. We because it's kind of our culture that we catch from the Chinese immigration in 19th century and Japanese immigration in 19th century, and the rice comes to get in Peru. Yeah, <laughs> but we are not good producers of rice because of the cost and because we don't have water. Yeah, and but there are a lot of people living from the rice production. Sure. Then it's a social. Yeah conflict and social and environmental conflict we but we because we uh, grow rice in the desert but the only solution is change the crop so change the crop. banana yeah is is maybe one of the examples because some areas that were rice for rice production changed to mm. banana mm. and now these producers are banana exporters yeah and they have better incomes they have a, 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 a crop that don't generate salinization. Yeah. They improve their lives. Interesting. But you have still 70,000 of hectares with, with rice. rice. Then yeah. we have to change to another products for exportation or for local market, but yeah. different than the rice. 
That, that's really interesting that here in this area there's a high production cost mm -hmm. but low logistical cost, whereas mm -hmm. in San Martin yeah. there is a, a lower production cost, but mm -hmm. there's a higher logistical cost yeah. to get it yeah. over here. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying that there should be more efforts to changing away from rice crops mm -hmm. to something else like bananas, mm -hmm. export more bananas and yeah. import more rice yeah, because then everyone yeah. would benefit at, at that point. Really, really interesting. And just uh, quickly uh, to note about the Chinese and Japanese migration, mm -hmm. if you haven't been to Peru and you do visit, or if you have visited, you'll notice something called chifas. Yeah. And this is a, a mix of Chinese and Peruvian cuisine. Yeah. Uh, it's akin to Chinese food in the U.S., although with uh, Peruvian flair And, and frankly, I, I haven't had it enough to really tell you what are the, the key differences between chifas mm -hmm. uh, and Chinese food, other than everyone tells me that chifas tastes a lot better yeah. here in, yeah. in Peru. But the, the influence is, is definitely noticeable here, I'd yeah. say, from those waves. Mm -hmm. And today, the current influence that I see in terms of migration mm -hmm. is from Venezuela. Yeah, uh, and the Venezuelans here, you notice them as waiters in restaurants. Mm. They are wearing backpacks in the mm. streets with mm. all their worldly possessions in them. And then, of course, if you speak to uh, everyday Peruvians, mm. they'll let you know what their opinion is of what's been happening with mm. the Venezuelan migration crisis yeah. in in recent years. Wondering what the impact of them has been on the local agricultural market because mm. as you mentioned before the lack of mechanization lack of mm. automation mm. in the farm processes enables there to be the employment of more workers yeah. as i understand some of the venezuelans have undercut peruvian workers in terms of wages for example because they don't have the full rights to mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. in Peru, yeah. they are hired uh, under the table in some mm -hmm. cases, mm -hmm. and therefore they don't earn mm -hmm. the legal yeah. monthly salary yeah. that is required. Yeah. Curious if also there's an issue of this in the farm industry, whereby you have laborers who are seasonal workers, mm. perhaps, or they're year-round workers who are Peruvians, mm -hmm. but now with this influx of Venezuelans, mm. yeah. if you're a producer, if you're management, you're able to cut your labor rates mm. costs by half, yeah. or maybe even mm. a third or yeah. two-thirds as a result of this influx of, yeah. of labor. I have no data about mm -hmm. how the companies are paying to the Venezuelans. But I know that there are this last campaign in table grape, in mangoes, and in, no, in banana, no, table grapes and mango and arandanos, uh, blueberries, okay. that they are hiring a lot of Venezuelans. Not, not much, but you know that at the beginning, the most of immigrants were professionals. and Yes. Uh, but now they are coming non-professional people. Everyday people. Then they, they ask for work in every activity they, they find. Then agriculture is, is in, especially from December to or maybe November to February here in, in the north. You have mangoes, you have table grapes, you have The arandanos and you have yeah. banana, of course. And, and that's during the yeah. summer here. Yeah, yeah. during the summer, the season of harvest. Then it, this this year, I know that there were a lot of Venezuelans working now. 
in the uh, harvest labels. But I don't know if it is structural. I mean, I don't know if it would be always because the Venezuelans are passing by Peru. I know that, well, because I have talked with a lot of people, the most of them are thinking about Chile and Argentina and Brazil. No. So you're saying you've spoken to Venezuelans yeah. and you asked them, you know, where are you heading towards? Yeah. What is your goal? Yeah. yeah, most of the Venezuelans are thinking in going to Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. And why? Why is that specific? Uh, because uh, the the quality of life in those countries are better than in Peru. Okay. No, and they they think in Peru as a step to their a transit point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah transit okay. point. The most of I don't know what's the percentage, but most of the people were who I talked with. Yep. Told me something like that. Mm. Uh, in my house in Lima, in my father's, my parents' house, they have two girls, Venezuelan girls, working in the house and in a restaurant. And they told us that. And of course, now they, were, they went to Chile, no, to Argentina. Now they are living in Argentina. Okay. And when they went, they called to their, friend, to, to, to their friends and tell, hey, I have work in Argentina, come. come to and Argentina, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, it's a kind of network, network. that is moving yeah. from Venezuela to Chile and Argentina, I think. Interesting, because I, I also have interacted with some Venezuelans, mm-hmm. not just here in Piura, but in Lima, the capital as well. Just this weekend, in fact, I met a Venezuelan uh, mother and her son, mm-hmm. and they were uh, trying to sell gum. Mm-hmm. And I just like you, struck up a conversation with mm-hmm. her and, and asked her, how did you choose to come to Piura? Mm-hmm. How did you end up here in, in Piura? And she had transited through Ecuador to yeah, come here. Yeah, of course. Specifically because she has a cousin who's yeah, in Piura. Yeah. So that's ex- it, it, it aligns exactly yeah. with what you're saying, is that there's this network, somebody uh, ends up in one location, kind of scopes it out, mm-hmm. and then says, okay, you know, things are, mm-hmm. are better here, come through. Yeah. yeah. That being said, the woman, uh, her name was Carolina, did tell me that the government here at yeah. the federal level yeah. was supportive yeah. in the sense that they're issued visas here and then also uh, the government was providing food yeah. for her son, Jose, yeah. which you know I, find, I found interesting, but there's, there's also uh, what, I, what I sense to be a very clear divide yeah. Yeah. between Peruvian society yeah. and Venezuelans who are on the fringe yeah, of, of yeah. that society. On, on one hand, you're right that they're not all professionals. Mm-hmm. The, the professional ones left mm-hmm. months or mm-hmm. even years ago, years ago, and those who could, they flew mm-hmm. directly to the US yeah, yeah. because I've met some there in, yeah. in New York City. Florida. Or yeah, Florida. even, even yeah. Florida yeah. as well. I think the, the underlying factor though is that the people who have, who have emigrated from Venezuela are ones who are in search of a better life. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's yeah, yeah. in dispute. Yeah. yeah, no, I think the situation is, is hard. Sometimes one doubt about what news say, but uh, when you talk with the people that's coming, mm-hmm. you know that what's happening is terrible. No? Because uh, you don't leave your country because a hobby. No. Yeah. <laughs> there must be a very strong reason why those people is leaving their country. Yeah. No. Then, on, on, for that reason, I think that all that the news show 
uh, it's near to the to the truth. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, if things are comfortable where you yeah. are, it, it's yeah. not going to compel yeah. you to yeah, leave everything behind, yeah. friends, family, yeah. uh, your community, mm. and go somewhere else. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm in complete agreement with you. Wondering uh, before we close. If there's anything you would like to share that I didn't ask you about, uh, whether uh, it's on your work here yeah. or the university or the city or the country. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, you know, Peru is a developing country. Uh, I come from Bogota. That is a very beautiful city, very cosmopolitan city. And for me, it was a, a little hard to come to Pura because for me, it's a low-developed city. It's a kind 500,000 yeah, people here. Yeah, uh, it's kind of town, a big town. <laughs> uh, then we have a lot of uh, challenges to include to uh, be attractive to the investors. Two years ago, one people, one person from the World Bank come and say, "You want that the big companies come to invest in Pura? You have to improve your city. Your city don't have." Uh, quality life mm. because of the disorder, the garbage, the noise. Yeah. Uh, you have been living in Vietnam and you are uh, you you have the the motos and the motorcycles. Right. But for me, it's not good for for the a city. Hockey. Yeah. And then uh, this this man from uh, World Bank said said us you have to improve the quality of life in your city, and it's one of the things that here in the University Piura are thinking about too uh, how that the engineers, the en entrepreneurs from here have to think how to improve the quality of life here in Pires. They are the other challenge we have, especially in the city. That's, I think. Yeah, and, and so one, one of the takeaways of my time in Vietnam was that within the challenges are the opportunities. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah, someone or many mm. people will yeah. have to come up with the solutions yeah. And I think what's particularly reassuring mm. is that those challenges aren't unique to places like yeah. Pura. Yeah, yeah. So if you can develop those solutions, yeah. then you can export them mm -hmm. abroad mm -hmm. or even within the region uh, here in northern Peru and mm -hmm. also Latin America. Yeah. Or if there's any technology that results yeah. from trying to discover solutions, yeah. Yeah. you can license it yeah. as well. And I, I think that's something that is hard to to realize mm -hmm. when you don't travel yeah. or you yeah, of course. stay of in, course. In, a, in a small yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. You also have experience yeah, in Asia, yeah. in Japan, yeah, yeah. and it's you know mm. a very different perspective mm. that you yeah. have being mm. on the other side of the world, yeah. so to speak. With that, unfortunately, we have to yeah. uh, close, have to yeah. but I, I want to thank you, Professor Lopez, for your time yeah. and, of course, for sharing your knowledge and yeah. for the invitation mm. to speak to your class. Yeah, I hope some of them mm. take the initiative and visit yeah. Vietnam, even if it's as a tourist, of course. and uh, realize <laughs> yeah. that actually there are okay. some things yeah. that are more in common than they appear to be. And, uh, well, good luck with your uh, efforts for mango. Okay. I'm a big fan of mangoes, but I think the Mexican mangoes have my heart. Yeah. <laughs> you have to try the mangoes here. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. I'm appreciative of Professor Lopez's examples that he highlighted for the variety of topics we discussed, as well as his frank assessment on the need for improving the quality of life in Pura in order to attract more foreign direct investment to the city and the surrounding area, especially in industries beyond farming. Certainly, 
community leaders like Professor Lopez can and do make a positive impact in both industry as well as preparing the next generation of young leaders. Next week, I'll have my last interview in Piura before heading back to Lima, Peru's capital. In the meantime, feel free to reach out directly to me if you'd like to learn more information about the Planetary Potential podcast or if you'd like to learn more about upcoming interviews. Thank you.